How's it going everybody? This is Game Over Montreal, which is also apparently what we say about 30 seconds into every game from now on. This is uh, the game where we say what could have gone worse over the first three games, uh, apparently scoring zero goals instead of one goal a game. I'm joined by two amazing people tonight, Shireen Ahmed from TSN and Mitch Brown from Elite Prospects, uh, EP Ringside specifically. And uh, we're going to bring them in right now and it's going to be a fun show no matter what. How's it going, guys? It's going better for me than it is for Alan, but uh, yeah. I, I was thinking of taking a positive angle tonight, so I might just be insufferable. <laughs> just wait and see. Oh yeah, I mean, let's get a couple positives out there just before we rake this team over the coals to the point where they are just like Anakin Skywalker and Revenge of the Sith. Cole Caulfield looked good tonight. Like, best game he's had so far this season. He wasn't bobbling the puck as much. He had a couple decent chances. Um, Jonathan Druin still looks good. Druin looked good. Um, yeah. Cole's parents are undoubtedly somewhere being adorable, so that's also definite. Um, uh, Deshaun's hair looked good, and his mask was on correctly. I'm out on a limb. Mitch, do you got anything positive? Yeah, so just tying into the Caulfield thing, like I thought he was fighting the puck early and he just stuck with it and he ended up creating a few chances, um, continued to see growth with him as a playmaker. Like this is this was a a bad game for a superstar type of performance from him. So it's only going to go up. And then the other thing is that um, the Canadians' two best chances this game or two of their three best chances came when their defensemen activated into the rush. So they're something that they can build on moving forward. Yeah, I guess the only to kill that and say the downside is uh, which defensemen are often activating. And really, there's only one defenseman that can do it properly on this team, right? Like, David Savard, I thought, has actually had some pretty good little rushes so far this season. But if you're counting on David Savard to, like, create offense, it's not a good look. It's not, it's not good at all. And the other one was Chris Weidman. So Chris Wyman, before he got that chance that he, uh, well, did the thing that his name suggests, uh, he was the guy who got the puck into the zone. And then the other one, uh, Savard, when um, I think it was the Dvorak tip, he was the one who brought the puck into the zone straight up the middle. Really, really good read. Something that we've seen from him uh, way back in Columbus, wrote an article on him, on him last year, I think. And that was kind of the big thing is he needs to be in an environment where he can activate because then he's going to create something because he is a good sort of facilitator. He's not an amazing skill guy, but as someone who can just be in the right places, he checks off that box. I think he has the potential actually uh, to, to play make, which is what needs because we're also a defensive line that's recalibrating. And I think we have to keep that in mind and a little bit of grace is important, but I agree with Mitch that, sometimes uh, foresight is important as important as skill and puck handling and this, because if the plays don't get created, they don't get done just to be quite, you know, quite basic about it. And I think that's something that we're still, because I mean, when Suzuki would come off, you would see him shaking his head and feeling frustrated because he didn't have the ships that he necessarily wanted to, and they didn't happen. And, you know, I think we just even saw from the shots, 
the lack of shots rather and the lack of opportunity. So there's all these things, these pieces that I'm glad we're talking about because it's not, it's not just this thing where you blame the forwards for not getting shit done. It's because it's got to start from somewhere and there's still the, the wheels are starting to move and they need to move or the gears rather, and they need to go in sync with the other gears. And we're not seeing that at all yet. No, it's, it's one of those situations where like, I think you look at this forward group and until you get to third line center, it's pretty decent, but the guys who are going to get them the puck and start the transitions, it's too many of the same player. And like we we had like a chat going before the game, and we were just kind of lambasting a few decisions. And like I've talked every episode of this show so far, which has been four straight losses. And thank you to everyone who's tuning in <laughs> to talk about these losses. I really appreciate it. And Thank you to the mods for uh, keeping our chat free of the spam that uh, I saw earlier there. But overall, as much as you want to be charitable because you look at what this team lost over the offseason, like the biggest loss losses were self-inflicted, right? Like just Barry Kokaniemi, that was a self-inflicted loss because they couldn't get a contract done way past when they should have been able to get it done. Bill Deneau, they didn't go a little bit higher on their offer. Like, that's all they had to do. I think he wanted to stay here. And Shea Weber, yes, couldn't be avoided. But who knew more about Shea Weber's injury history than anybody else in the league? And you had years that you knew this was going to be the case. Because, Frank, okay, I don't know if I've told this story before. I don't know if it's out there. But days after that, the trade, the Subban-Weber trade, I was in a conversation with somebody in the Nashville Predators organization. And they said that his injuries will end his career very soon. That's like, what, five, six years ago now? Like, it was a long time ago. The Canadians knew from the day of that trade that Weber was nursing some stuff that was, that was going to end his career. So as much as I want to give them some leeway for, like, you can't replace a player like that in one summer, true. But they've done absolutely nothing to replace him or prepare for that loss over the last five years. And that to me is inexcusable. Well, I just, I don't necessarily think this is a team being led with vision. And I mean, at we, our chat group, I mean, our little conversation we were having before the show went live is there's a lot of insight, I think, into the comments that I will not repeat. But um, just that, you know, I know that there's that sense of planning. And the Canadians are not known for like, sensible planning on anything or taking advice from outside experts. I mean, they're not renowned for doing that kind of thing. So you're right to say it's self-inflicted, but I think there's also a hastily managed, like so many of their decisions. I could, I don't know how many I can point to that are not well, like carried out. And that's going, that's, we're starting to see the effects of that immediately now on the ice. And that's a problem. Well, and I think you, sorry, Mitch, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I, I mean, I think that their contingency plan on Weber was Romanov. Like, we have never seen a player in Mark Bergevin's tenure that he hyped up so much. We're talking about there have been super high-skilled players, and he's talking about Romanov. Is, he's he's going to be mainstay day one, top guy for us, top pairing defenseman. And he's not. He's no. very much not. And the weird thing about watching him in the NHL is he's gotten worse. <laughs> The very yeah. his first five six games in the NHL were very promising for a myriad of reasons, and then ever since then it's just been downhill. So like watching him in this game, 
His first three shifts, just garbage. First three, first shift, throws a needless hit, gets caught chasing, loses his man in the slot. The next shift, he goes back out. Again, he loses his man. The man cuts to the inside and then deflects the puck into the back of the net. And the weird thing about this was that it was completely avoidable. All he had to do was either communicate with Nick Suzuki, who was chasing that guy, or he just needed to hustle to get the guy in the middle of the slot. And he didn't either. He just stood there and looked and then watched the puck get deflected into his own net. Uh, then the third one, he basically just coughed the puck up in the corner. And there's a lot of backing off too easily in the neutral zone. Uh, he hurries every single puck that he gets. It's on a stick. He just fires it away. He has no ability to read pressure. And he just shoots every single time. It's painful to watch. He doesn't use space at all. And the weird part is, is that in this game, he had one shift where he got the puck. He faked the shot, really convincing weight shift to like he sold it. He passed it back to his partner and then his partner passed it back to him. He did it again. And then he went cross slot and set up a scoring chance. And it's like, why isn't he doing that more regularly? And I think part of that is a, the expectations, there was too much pressure on him from the beginning. And then B, he clearly needed more development time. He was playing in the KHL from the time he was 18. He needed more time to develop that area of his game. They put him in the NHL. And it's just here in flashes. I mean, if you want to be a top pairing guy, you have to be able to distribute the puck and you got to be able to break it out. He can do neither. And that's kind of the issue with a lot of the Canadians defensemen, right? I think of the guys that they have that are very similar in like the Romanov, Edmondson, Savard, uh, Sherratt, that same mold, they're all essentially the same player. The only one that seems to be able to make like quick decisions and play that safe game is Edmondson, right? Like he meshed really well with Petrie last year because despite a, a kind of a rough start, they learned really quickly that Edmondson could just do the simple play and dish to Petrie really quickly before teams could react, and then it could just, you know, it would go around. Things would happen. Move it to your partner. Let's get it going. And Sherratt is just, like, very panicky with the puck. Romanov gets really panicky or just, like, forgets about the puck and goes on a hike. You know, and Savard, I think there's some parts of his game that I really like, but puck handling in the defensive zones, not one of them so far. I mean, I will jump in here and sort of say, Bencero, I, I feel like there's potential. I feel like there's, it depends on the lineup. It depends what the pairing is. But I also think if we're talking about space, I think that, I think he's got, he's, he, mm, how do I say this without being cynical? I don't think that's possible today, but I've seen glimpses of him using that space that you speak of. And I think there's glimpses. He skates fast. I think he has less, he handles the pressure more, arguably more time, more experience. But I, I think there's a potential there. But right now, it's almost like when one branch is shaky, the whole tree will collapse because the whole thing is shaky right now. And it's hard to decipher and implement what, players particularly d-line what players um expertise can be best utilized because it's just not we can't see it we can't like andrew you commented that it's just not there's no chemistry and that's the problem here that we're not being able to see what they can do best because they're not gelling at all at this point and we're we're still talking about individual players but they at some point they'll need to be a con like a cohesive unit and they're not doing that and it's Again, it's early in the season. Can I say, can I be positive and say it's early in the season? You can try. 
It's early in the season. I'm going to keep saying that. I just saw something online that Patrick Watt is trending in Canada. Now, I don't know if that's a good thing right now. I'm a bit scared. Oh, man. But right now, it's, yeah. And apparently, uh, tweet from, oh, God, he's talking. Oh, don't. anyways. Um, Stu Cowan just said, you know, five nothing to the Sharks. Habs are now zero for four the first time since 95, 96. The year that Hawaii left Montreal. So they're trying to bring it back full circle, bring Wall back. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a groundswell of support that I think we saw last year as well. I mean, every time the Canadians struggle under Bergman, it seems like since Wall left Colorado, they've been like, well, Patrick Wall, Patrick Wall. And I think there's like a certain level of passion that a player or former player like Patrick Wall, a competitor like Patrick Wall can bring to an organization. But I don't know if I want that in your GM. You know, like in around the team in some capacity, I can kind of understand, but just based on was moves when he was like allowed to be partially in control in Colorado, I I don't think that he's necessarily a progressive looking guy. And I'm just having watched this team under Bergevin for the last, I think it's nine years now. I'm really done with the old school garbage. I'm just, I'm just so done with it. I want to see something entertaining. I'm tired of acquiring every stay-at-home defenseman on the market for a semi-decent contract and watching one defenseman try to lug the puck up for everyone. Like, how much pressure is on Jeff Petrie right now to be amazing every night? And, like, the the start that he had to last season was spectacular. But he can't do that every year. And especially when there's, like, absolutely zero other people on that defensive core to take the pressure off of him like Weber had his limitations in terms of not even necessarily in terms of puck moving but in terms of what he wanted to do with the puck he he didn't like to carry the puck he didn't like to move the puck himself out of the out of the defensive zone which puts a lot of pressure on his partner but he could do it under duress like if he was forced to he would be moving the puck and he'd do it well Petrie's got nobody so he's taken the top minutes He's got all the pressure on him. Everybody knows. So, like, every team is going to be keying on Jeff, P- Jeff Petrie. He's going to make more mistakes this season than he ever has. And Romanov is his relief valve. Like, yeah. So, so the, the interesting thing here is that Romanov gets the puck. He sees a guy coming towards him, and he's like, what do I do? Either I throw it up the boards or I throw it to Petrie. It doesn't matter if Petrie's cover or not. And then Petrie takes the blame for the turnover. And that's really been the theme of his entire career going back to Edmonton is someone gives him the puck in a terrible position. He tries to problem solve his way out of it. And then he gets crapped on for it. And he actually had the best breakout of this entire game. Both teams where he got the puck cut to the inside, looked like into the opposing corner to pretend that he was going to dump it. And then just like threw it back against the grain to a teammate straight up the middle in stride. Just a beautiful play. No one else in the Canadians roster can do that. ton of their prospects can do it, but none of them will get the opportunity because of this current system is very restrictive. And I think this ties into like sort of a broader point, right? Is that this is a team that's very low on confidence and they're not low on confidence because they don't have talent or anything like that. They're low on confidence because they play in a fairly restrictive, rigid environment that punishes mistakes. So if you make a mistake, you know, there's going to be pretty severe consequences for it of like, not just in terms of getting screamed at, but in terms of like, you know, what's going to happen when you give that puck away, because you're not going to have support. And when you're scared of making mistakes, your confidence is a lot more fragile. And so this is just this feedback loop 
with these players right now is that they make a mistake, confidence gets low. Then on top of that, they're also not a particularly creative offensive team. Uh, very straight line, very kind of in the corners and hope, you know, hoping to pray and get it to Nick Suzuki, who's the only guy on the team who can bring it out into the middle, him and Caulfield and Toffoli. Um, and so when you miss those chances, it feels even worse. Yeah, it, it's like a confluence of all those things, right? That create this like claustrophobic feeling. As soon as they're down one, it, it already feels like the game is over. And that's been something that's been around for a couple of years now, right? Yep. And as much as uh, people got on Claude Julien, at least his teams were dominant at even strength. And maybe Dom, Dom Ducharme doesn't have that opportunity because he doesn't have two-thirds of a line that was one of the best in the NHL for the last three seasons in Thomas Tatar, Phil Deneau, and Brennan Gallagher. Like, two of those guys are just gone. But at the same time, like, I thought Dom Ducharme was supposed to be a progressive coach as well, and he's come in and created an even more restrictive uh, system than Claude Julien's was, right? And I think, in a, if anything, he trusts young players less than Julien did as well. Like, Julien had his misgivings. I remember, like, talking to people in the media and how Julien was really upset with, like, Kokaniemi's lack of strength, right? And, like, his balance issues and not improving his skating. But, like, he kept throwing him out there. He kept throwing him out there, and I just... I don't see the level of confidence in the young players from Ducharme. We saw it in the playoffs, right? Like one thing goes wrong and the young guys are getting scratched. You know, like start the playoffs with Cole Caulfield on the bench after he's the one who kind of pushed them into the playoffs in the first place. I'm just not seeing enough positive there. And like to talk, let's talk about Ducharme a little bit. Because I think a lot of people are focusing on Bergevin and for good reason, because he's kind of what created this situation. But I look at, how each game has gone this season and like the Buffalo game when it became three to one uh, right after the Canadians like put it to within two to one. They, I think they took a penalty or two penalties in a row and Buffalo scored a three to one goal. You can see it on the bench. They like all the energy was gone, right? They're like, Oh, we were playing well, momentum gone. Now this game is over. Call a timeout today. When the sharks went up two to nothing, call a timeout. Like, how is he not called a timeout in any of these games? Like, the, the conservative approach is so severe. It's not just in terms of play style. It's that, like, this fear of, like, oh, well, I might need that timeout later. Call it when it actually matters. You know, like, call it at the beginning of the game when you can actually rally your troops and, and kind of get something going here. And I just don't see any creativity, not just from the players on the ice, but from the coaching staff to get this team, this ship righted and... Things will change in terms of like the puck will start going in at certain points in the season because it always does. And this is not only bad play, it's also a combination of that and bad luck. You, like Weidman's missed chance there. I think most times, even if a guy's a bad shooter, he's going to put that puck in an empty net and people are gripping their sticks. But I just, I don't know what the organization sees in a lot of the people that they employ outside of they went and rode Carey Price to a Stanley Cup final. You mentioned two things that I think are key here. Uh, one is the lack of confidence of the youth. And the other thing is actually creativity. And both of those things are deeply connected. And I think that if you're not giving a chance, like, do we all think that everybody emerges like victorious all the time? I mean, yeah, we had a great postseason, absolutely the young guns, but they need time 
to make those mistakes without feeling like there's going to be some type of retribution. And I think you can't foster creativity if you don't make way for the fact that you learn stuff out of and like the rigidity with which we see Duchamp doing like coaching the way he does it. That might've worked in 1963, but it's not working right now. And we're having conversations that are different and we're having you know, hockey culture cannot stay stagnant in Montreal within the front of the, like the coaching approach. And I think that's what we're seeing. Like we're talking about ways in which to best utilize these young players and let them like, they've shown us so much. And you're so right about Caulfield. Caulfield. Like he literally, he literally took us to the, took the team to, to the playoffs. Like, so what I'm not saying we continuously congratulate, because we also don't want to be that team. That's always like, remember 2021, 30 years from now, because we've never made it back to the playoffs, but like you, there needs to be learning. And, and you alluded to this on Twitter too. It was alluded to Andrew, that you said this taking, making the right decisions and learning the right lessons. I think the less, I don't know what lessons to be honest with you, the like the, the the organization took from the playoff run. I don't because immediately after that there was a slew of things that went totally terribly wrong. But I also think that this is something that they're not hitting anywhere clear close to the mark on. And it's sad to see because the last thing that we want is to be a team with to be we don't want this to be a team with forwards who had the potential that was never realized. That's like unrequited love. And I'm sorry, I've been a Habs fan for way too long to have this happen for another freaking 30 years. No. Yeah. And I, I think that like I look at Cole Caulfield and for me, it's like a slow start, right? Like he was, I thought he's looked really nervous up until the midpoint of this game, like bobbling pucks like crazy, mishandling pucks and just like, or overhandling it and right into an opposing player's stick check. Stuff that we just didn't see from him in the in the playoffs or even last season when he was just jumping into the league. I think that's going to fix itself. Uh, Suzuki will fix himself as soon as he gets over the like new contract jitters, which I think is a, a very real thing for him. And like the pressure of being the number one center, which I believe he was actually leading in ice time last year too. But I mean, I think we all know that Deneau faced a lot of heavy competition in order to insulate Suzuki and Kokaniemi for the last season or two. So there's a lot of pressure on those young guys, which is like maybe good long term, but maybe not so great right now. I, I I wonder though, just what the plan is because you you were talking about the off season, Shireen, and what they let what they learned. I think they think that uh, their defensive defenseman strategy was brilliant, right? They're like people refer to him as like the big four and the in the playoffs and they were just cross-checking everybody and killing the opponents in front of Carey Price and clearing the lane so you could see every puck, which I think it was partially true, but a lot of that becomes easy to digest because Carey Price was saving like 95% of shots. And like, I think going into the Stanley Cup final, his save percentage on the PK was like something like 97 or 98%. It was completely absurd. And that kind of stuff doesn't last forever, even with a goaltender who can elevate to the point that Carey Price can. So I, I think they bit hard on that. A lot of teams did in the offseason, right? Like there was that huge run on defensive defensemen around free agency where guys were getting paid massive money that nobody really expected. And like I think I've said it every single show, they should have traded Ben Chirot when that was going on because they would have got like a first round pick for him 
I guarantee it. And now that Weber's gone and like everyone can see how exposed he is, like what's the value at the trade deadline when I think he's a UFA this coming season. So like likely he will be traded if the Canadians keep going to this point, like so far out of the playoffs. I think they're 32nd out of 32 teams being 0-4. It's so many bad decisions, but I, I do wonder what the plan is because when you lose Deneau, when you know you're losing Weber, and then Carey Price is getting off-season surgery even before he enters the player assistance program, you know this season's going to be a huge uphill climb, right? Then you lose Kokaniemi, so you've lost a piece of your like future core, at least you think, right? Why trade for Christian Dvorak now? Why not take those picks and just say, like, be honest about what this season is going to be and try to do, like, build for two years from now, for three years from now, when Caulfield's going to be at his best, when Suzuki's going to be at his best, and you hope that Price can, like, maintain himself to do another crazy playoff run before he retires. Well, at some point, you do need someone to play the minutes, right? And You do. I think the price for Dvorak wasn't terrible for what he brings, but also Shane Wright, and this is a good draft, and it's in Montreal, and there's a lot of different variables at play here. Uh, but yeah, there is no vision, right? I think that's I think that's probably like so. The first evidence is the kid that they picked in the first round of the of the draft this year. You have someone who was convicted of a sex crime in a foreign country, and they picked him, seemingly thinking that it wasn't a big deal and that no one would ever really care, right? This is this is an organization that just thinks that they're invincible to a degree and that they're always right and that their decision-making is always sound. It's, it's a problem like for so many different, for so many different reasons. I mean, most importantly, the fact that it's so exclusionary doing, picking a player like that. Um, It's, it's frustrating though, to watch an organization that has for the most part brought in like interesting, exciting players, like, you know, Matthias Norlander, this guy doesn't play, positions he he could be a major trendsetter for the nhl or at least be a continuation of it Jaden struble brings a ton of different things Caden gooley is kind of this defensive defenseman but he also has enough skill that you could see him developing into something more and in this organization in this current structure they're not going to and so then you're missing out on a lot of the hard work that you've done in other areas yeah, and that bring I've brought this article up a couple times on this show as well but Ellen Atchingham wrote an article I believe it was like before the season started, maybe even before training camp, talking about, you know, making bank on your draft picks, right? And it wasn't like a hard hitting analysis of the Canadians draft record. It was like very simple. I think it was like uh, players drafted by the Montreal Canadiens who played 100 games for the organization, which is not a high bar. And the Canadians were, that she compared under the Ganey Gauthier regime to the Bergevin regime which she mentioned during the article, like it's the same scouts, Trevor Timmons still in charge, right? They've added other guys as well. Uh, Shane Trillo was there. I think Shane Trillo left this summer, but he was there for a few years. And I know he's a respected uh, scout. I don't think he is my type of scout in terms of like no. what he values, no. but uh, uh, he's respected around the league. Like for the most part, it's the same scouting staff, the same guys who are actually doing the scouting in the European leagues, in the CHL, all that. But the hit rate for the Ganey Gauthier regime was like three or four times higher 
than the Bergevin regime. And then I think like, okay, is it direction to take players that aren't good or like don't have the same upside or is it development? And like you mentioned, Mitch, that their development is kind of a joke. And I, I look, I, I hate comparing to the Maple Leafs because I know Maple Leafs fans love it. And you have to have like Habs fans in the chat being like, it was 3-1, it was 3-1. And then it just starts like a, a bit of a shitstorm. But you look at the way that the Maple Leafs handle their young players and the skills coaches they bring in, the skating coaches they bring in. And it's not like Montreal is poor. They can afford to do all those things. But their philosophy is more like, if you make it, you make it. And if you don't, it's your fault. And I just, I don't understand that in a professional setting. Like, shouldn't you be trying to squeeze every little thing out of every player that you draft? This, this is what I think we were talking about vision. This is a lack of vision, whether it's player development, whether it's mental performance, whether it's like all these aspects of coaching that need to come together for players. I think those are things that are, are missing. And this is where we see it. Um, Again, I think it is early for us to be incredibly doubtful because I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be positive. Mitch is rubbing off on me a little bit, but like, and maybe we've switched roles and maybe he's like, "Mm, no. Um, But the thing is, is that that's exactly it. The lack of trying to get and trying to maximize and elevate your players and what they can do. I don't feel that energy. I literally don't feel that energy. And like the last, like, like, you know, we, I joked about the last time this, the record was this bad this in the season was 95. But like, the funny thing is, is that it's almost like the Habs don't learn from their own history at all. We've been here before. We seem to be here quite often. And not even being able to capitalize off the energy and the electricity of the off season like that, like how can you screw that up so badly so soon? Like Mitch talked about, like, like the Mayu thing was a mess and we didn't even have a chance to enjoy that run before I was up there explaining to everybody why this was so problematic. Like you didn't even get a chance to like exhale and we don't get a chance to do that. And it's like this constant, it doesn't need to be a rat race within their own organization. And I feel like that's what's happening here. It's not just a lack of chemistry on the, on the players, the front office, like the, it's a mess and they need to figure it out because it trickles down and affects the way the performance is going. And they haven't even made that connection yet. Yeah, That's and I'm, bad, I'm a yeah. I'm big on the idea that like bad management trickles down, just, like straight onto the ice. Like it affects everything, and I think we saw that at the end of the Goche regime, when you had like players like Mike Camilleri traded in the middle of the game. All of a sudden, everything went completely chaotic. You know, when when the guy at the top is panicking or doing things that are not thought out, it comes down into the players immediately, and that whole Mayu situation. Like, not only were they not prepared, but I don't think we've really been able to see, or maybe it's starting to be visual now that we see the arena, the damage that the brand took by making that move. And like, yes, COVID is still something that's going on. And there's probably some hesitancy to go through, go to the arena. And the fact that they started poorly, it, it matters. But that arena was almost empty today. It's the Montreal Canadiens. They just went to the Stanley Cup final. You would think people would be itching like banging down the door to experience the bell center again right and it ain't happening you know like i've been offered free tickets to multiple games and i'm like well i can't i have to do this show i don't i'm not gonna go to a game because i have to be home right away so it's just 
I, I think we're going to see in the coming years, if they don't figure it out soon, the damage is going to be extremely serious. And I'm not sure outside of renouncing that pick and a whole new management team coming in that changes things in a drastic and very visible way that they're going to be able to like write that long term. And just one last thing on that pick is that, you know, they almost didn't make it. If Zachary LaRue was available, I'm certain they would have taken him, but Nashville took him a few spots above. And then this whole mess is avoided, even though that doesn't justify it because they still wanted to pick and they still wanted to add him to his organize to their organization. You know, we would have a very different tone about this because it wouldn't be public information. And so all the teams that wanted to take him, but didn't, they don't have to, they don't get roasted because for the most part, we don't know who they are. And then how bad, how much does that change at the start of this season? Probably pretty significantly. The energy around the team is probably a lot stronger. Yeah. I mean, not only do they have that negative energy, right? They lost essentially three quarters of their leadership core from last season, right? Like, Weber gone. Uh, Dano was, I would say, a leader in that room. Uh, Carey Price is out for now. And not really talked about much, Paul Byron, right? And I think that as much as Paul Byron has some limitations as a player, Paul Byron, from a leadership perspective and in terms of like a game-breaking perspective, did a lot, does things that a lot of players can't do, right? Those games that have ended 2-1, the Toronto game and uh, now the Rangers game, were one Paul Byron bobbled puck on a PK from a breakaway goal, right? You know, like, he's he's that guy that, like, out of nowhere in a game that's just lost, finds a way to score a ridiculous goal, and you're like, Paul Byron? Paul Byron did that again? So, like, there's losses on that roster that are felt more that aren't really talked about. But, yeah, the, the combination of the negative energy and the lack of established leadership in the room and, let's be honest, from the management group is killer. I mean, one last one thing I wanted to add about that, what you just said and scaffolding off that is that the leadership team and what you see the senior players, they guide the younger ones. And that gap in leadership has to be addressed by management and filled in some capacity, if not by other players, just like whether it's their, you know, coaching or whether it's changing a plan to give the confidence that we talked about earlier to the, to the, you know, younger players. And that's not there. I mean, the loss of Shea Weber is huge. The carry price is a, is a stalwart. Like that is huge. And I mean, him taking time off is important for obvious reasons. And like in ways, Dwayne has stepped up by being public and being honest. And he's taken a huge amount of attention and handle it with so much dignity and class, in my opinion, despite this result. But there is those huge losses, not just on the ice, not just defensively of, of that leadership that you speak of. And that's something that I just don't see management hustling to fix, hustling to do. They seem extremely chaotic and disorganized again. And like the good graces of Habs fans can carry us for decades. We know this, but it they need to fix it and like address it rather before fixing it. You have to admit there's a problem. And I don't even think they're there yet. No. And I mean, I would assume that they know on the ice there's a problem so far. <laughs> right. But uh, they probably just see that as like the guys they lost. Right. And it's not easily addressed. I mean, I think that you could, even if he was healthy and already had his surgery, if you add Jack Eichel to this team, it's not going to turn them around in one day, right? You still have that defensive issue. 
there's there's a lot that needs to be addressed. This team really did get blown up in the, in the summer after they went to a Stanley Cup final, which is kind of funny. But I think the most surprising thing, and I mentioned this in our chat before we started the show, the most surprising thing about this team so far to me is that in the moments where you expect them to get a jump out of something, it hasn't been there. Uh, both the games that ended 2-1, I believe, were the games that Jonathan Drouin scored, right? I Actually, I guess the Rangers game ended the 3-1 because they scored an empty netter, so I can't... But it was a one-goal game, overall. I don't understand how a team that just went to the Stanley Cup final, that has some veteran players, that saw what Jonathan Drouin went, went through, can't see Jonathan Drouin score in that first game against the Maple Leafs, and just, like, run through the boards with excitement you know what i mean like they were excited in the moment but then it was like it fizzled out immediately and i just i haven't seen any of that sustained like mojo or like excitement or intensity from this team yet that even when they were bad over the last few years they had that in spurts right and we haven't seen it once in four games I, it, it just shocks me. Like, to me, if I'm Jonathan Drouin's teammate right now and he scores a goal, like he's got two in the first four games, I'm I'm going out there that next shift, and if I am not a good uh, shooter or a good passer, I'm laying the body on someone. I'm, like, getting energy into this team. I'm doing something crazy. I'm going to skate as hard as I can, every, like, every which way. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to keep the energy going. And it just seems like shift to shift, they can't maintain energy. And every time they have a couple good shifts in a row... Here comes Ben Sherratt with a cross-checking penalty. <laughs> okay, so what about Gallagher fighting Carlson? That's energy. Yeah, he tried, right? He tried. Didn't we love that? Like, I mean, it was, you know, after I think was his second goal, Mitch, he started yeah. fighting him. And, like, we want that, right? Like, we want that. And we were all excited in the chat group. We're like, hey, look, something is happening, some kind of movement, just to, like you said, to keep that level up. So, but I mean, you know, we need to rely on like actual goal scoring for future, but yeah, I hear you. And the special teams are really deflating too. Yes. Like the penalty kill is just so narrow. And so the flanks are just completely open to be exploited. And then when you're that narrow, you like sprint and then you can easily get passed through or get passed around. And the power play is just, it misses a lot of basic principles. Like the number one thing on your power play is that when you get the puck, you draw someone towards you and then you pass away from that pressure or through it. So you create space and you pass back into the space that you just created. And they don't do this. There was one on the point. They had a one time. I can't, I think it was the only Hoffman one time where they were able to set up where whoever passed the puck, it might've been Jeff Petrie. He just got it and threw it to Hoffman. So the goaltender knew he had a ton of time to react. The defend the PKers had a ton of time to react. What he should have done is turn squared his body towards the net faked the shot, and then passed it, which is what David Savard actually did on a sequence later on in the game, which helped set up a, a deflection chance with like five or so minutes left. And that's what creates all that space. They need to start doing that. I'm not saying you take Jeff Petrie off the power play or anything, but for the time being, someone like Savard, who clearly has that built into his game already, might be an interesting way to experiment. Also Caulfield, like just get Caulfield moving, lots of Caulfield movement, getting open. The thing that makes him unique is that he can shoot it and score from any angle. He can take a puck, front foot, back foot, any angle, turn it into a top shelf one-time goal. Put him in situations where he's going to be stretching the penalty killers. 
put them in dead ice where they're not going to go to him. So you can just pass it to him and he can try to shoot that thing. Like he had that, he had that sharp angle shot that ran, that rang off the post. Uh, we've seen him tons of times at Wisconsin international hockey, even a little bit in the NHL, get that wide shot going. They need to figure out a way to get Caulfield in those positions because at the end of the day, he's a goal scorer and you score goals by maximizing their game. Yeah. It's very confusing how they have had a terrible power play for like 10 years. <laughs> Don't seem like... Over and over. Yeah. And Just... the fact that they replaced their power play coach in the middle of last season and it something like it changed for like a couple games and then it was back to the norm. And like we talked about it earlier in the, in the show, the first two episodes where like those five on threes in the first two games where every single shot was a point shot. And even if you're going to do that, like get some movement side to side. And there was not, <laughs> it, it seems like that the power play just won't move. There's no, uh, like, switching of positions there's no creativity and then eventually it goes back to jeff petrie and he gets frustrated and tries to like blast through players which is what shea weber did for the last couple of years and what petrie did the last couple of years and they both had some level of success in doing that because they're both very good players with above average shots but there, there's really no movement through the middle of the ice there's no movement down low outside of like behind the net as they rim the puck around over and over and over again and i just i look at if we're talking about it being a talent issue, you probably shouldn't get railroaded by the San Jose Sharks. The San Jose Sharks aren't talentless, but they are so also are not talented. And like the same thing with the Buffalo Sabres, right? Like the Buffalo Sabres power play eviscerated the Canadians in game two. And the Canadians can't do that to anyone. Like you're telling me like a team with a guy as creative as Nick Suzuki can't make some creative plays in the power play when he has some more space. But everybody's so static. I, I don't understand what the plan is with this whole organization, like top to bottom. You know, like roster construction, system wise, special teams. Like it just seems like everything is so five to ten years ago, and they can't get past it. But that that's exactly it. I don't think they have a plan. I don't think there is a cohesive plan. I think we've established that. We've diagnosed the problem, but they haven't addressed the issues and created a plan. And we've talked about creativity. We've talked about lack of almost what feels, it almost felt like after game, uh, after the third goal, they just look so discouraged. And yeah, you're going to be discouraged when it's like four, nothing. And it's like four, nothing in the third, three, nothing. Sorry. In the first period, like that's discouraging. Absolutely. But there's, you know, we've seen the Habs fight back. We've seen that spirit. They seem spiritless at the moment. And that is, the, I mean, that should be part of the plan. Let's, I keep talking about addressing something and fixing it, but because like, it just doesn't feel like, it just feels like they're, they're numb. And, you know, at this point, like, especially after last year, but it's, you know, what is really sad about this kind of pivoting a little bit is that you talked about, Stad, like the stadium being empty, the Bell Center was was not at capacity by any means. But it's almost like Montreal Canadiens fans expect this. <laughs> and I don't think there's a, the one thing people are not is surprised, which is sad at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think after the losses they suffered in the summer, it was like expected that they wouldn't be great, right? And that this was going to be an uphill battle to even make the playoffs. But this level of bad, like I was joking with uh, on the last show, Chris Watkins and Marsha Joseph, 
before we started the show. I was like, you know, they're not the worst Canadian edition of the Canadians that I've ever seen, but they're extremely milk toast. I think I'm going to walk that back a little bit. They might be right now the worst edition of the Canadians that I've ever seen that I'm watching every game because I wasn't watching every game in 1995. I was just a kid. I wasn't watching every game in 2002. I was living in Alberta and there was no NHL center ice back then that my parents had. So this is this is rough. And I, I got to tell you, Montreal Canadiens organization, it feels personal that you would do this just as I launched this show. It feels very personal. I know you don't like me, but this is taking it a little bit far. I mean, I remember 95 very well. Um, and we joked about this in the chat group, too. Uh, Mitch wasn't born. <laughs> and the youths of today. Um, no, but like, I remember the doldrums. Like, I remember checking out for a long time. Like, I was never, even though I live in Toronto Maple Leaf land, I was never going to adopt that. But, you know, there's this, there's this, and I mean, we know with hockey, and I know living in the Toronto Maple Leafs land, there's this constant discouragement that they live with. They've had no joy. They've had no finals for like decades. Like, I mean, your parents might not have even been born the last time the Maple Leafs were like, you know, like maybe. You know what yeah, I mean? They were, so, they were, they were a couple months old, actually. A couple months old, exactly. Yeah. So, like, you know, the, it's generations who haven't felt this. So, I just, I just want more for the Montreal Canadiens, and it would be, you know, such a shame if you're trying to tout that they're astute, astute business folks and managers and this and that, and. But this isn't the first time we've had a conversation about who would be a, a better general manager. I ended up in prep for the show. I ended up Googling this and I found an article from 2012 about who would be a better, who would be a better GM. I mean, you've got names like Jim Nil, you've got like Julien Brisebois, who we talked about in the chat group as well, Luc Robitaille, like all former, former players. So this is a conversation that we forgot that we have constantly over the years that who would be better who which random montreal canadians former player should we bring up this is a game yeah it is a game and i know we mentioned patrick wah that is a name that always circulates uh we we joked in the chat that one of the names that came up uh last time i believe was interviewed by molson and uh serge savard was vincent damfus he (laughs) wanted to throw his hat in the ring and I, I've met Vincent Damfus. Uh, I got to talk to him for a project with that I did with Concordia, with the actually John Wilson School of Business, where we were trying to look at like uh, specifically if a player's performance changes when they become a captain. So we looked at like season before, season after, and tried to establish if there was a relationship in terms of how their play changed or if their play changed. It was interesting stuff, but uh, we talked to him about it because you know he's a guy who used to be a captain, and. The one thing that I got from Danfus that really stayed in the back of my mind was I talked to him about his career, and I talked about to talked to him about him like later in his career when his numbers started to fall off. And I was like, "Oh yeah, did you like was it injuries? Was it you started to feel a little bit older, like not as fast anymore?" And he was like, "No, they just took my power play time away." And I was like, "Huh?" And he was like, "Yeah, no, I was just as good as I was with the Canadians." And I was like, "You were like 38." He was like, "No, I was just as good." They just took my power play time away. I don't know why they were doing it. <laughs> He's one of those guys that doesn't have the awareness, I think, that uh, maybe you want a general <laughs> manager. No offense, Vincent, but... Uh, but maybe that would make him perfect for this role. Lack of self-awareness seems to be a character trait of general <laughs> managers of this team. So 
Might as well just throw Pierre Maguire's name into the ring. In this case, <laughs> oh, <so> God. I... <laughs> I, I've wanted Pierre Maguire to be a GM of a, a different team for my entire adult life. But uh, apparently he's going to stick in Ottawa for a while. We'll see how that works out. I think maybe he's a better si- a better fit as uh, an assistant GM than the guy who's actually in charge. But remains to be seen what the Ottawa Senators do. Uh <laughs> Do we have anything else that we want to talk about with the Montreal Canadiens tonight? Because I think we've gone a pretty good length of time. We've kept a, a solid number of viewers here, so if people are still wanting to stick around, we can talk longer. I, I just don't want to get into a point of where we're talking in circles of, like, this. we know the issues. We know they're probably not going to fix it right now. Maybe we'll end on this. Because, I, you know, as soon as they started going, as soon as they went down 2 nothing tonight, Mark Bergevin was trending in Canada. If they lose to Carolina, and Mark Bergevin, remember, is not signed. He didn't sign an extension for this coming year, so it's like very anticipated that he won't be the GM next year. How soon do you think the Montreal Canadiens should just move on and try to let someone figure out what the problems are going forward? Or do you think Molson has the wherewithal to do that this season? Or are they just going to let Bergevin ride it out no matter how bad it gets? I think they probably just let him ride it out. But if you're a Mark Bergevin, you probably just want to like, you know, go grab your beach towel and move over to the West Coast and relax for a little bit, get away from everyone before you start your new job. Uh, with the Los Angeles Kings is all the rumors are so the rumor, rumor people are saying. But yeah, no, you I I am of the belief that as soon as you think there's something wrong, you try to fix it. And these issues with the Canadians have been going on for a very long time. Like it's not, it, it's been mostly going on the entire Bergevin era. And before that, you need to find someone new and you need to find someone new as soon as possible. Because at the end of the day, you have a potential star player, two potential star forwards in Suzuki and especially Caulfield. Mm-hmm. You need to maximize these players. I know that we talk about players primes being 27 to 31, but if you look at it statistically, it's like 22 to 25 or 22 to 26. And so Caulfield's going to enter his prime in a year. And Suzuki is just beginning his. So this is the perfect time to try to figure something new out and try to get the most out of these two talents that in a, in a with a bit of struggle, with a bit of luck, you kind of like, you know, they traded Pacioretty for one and people were a little bit down on Suzuki. And then Caulfield was a 15th overall pick. Like you lucked into this in a way. Now take advantage of it. Yeah, yeah. you. I was with you until you said Jeff Molson and then wherewithal. So... I was like, okay, yeah, no. So I'm with <laughs> Mitch. I, th- I I just don't think, yeah, no. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> so not going to get fixed. That's that's the verdict. Yeah, I, I don't think they're going to move on either. And I, I think that's kind of like the whole issue with the Canes is everything moves at a snail's pace, right? And they're very reticent to modernize, you know, from the way that they market themselves to the way that they evaluate players to the way that they do business. It's slow. And unfortunately, when things are going poorly and you can see the end of the runway anyway, and you're still not going to make that decision, like, I'm not going to call right now that Mark Bergevin needs to be fired, but I think it would benefit the team long term if they had a plan moving forward for when Mark Bergevin moves on, which seems to be what's going to happen at the end of the season anyway. So maybe they do have a plan they're keeping secret. Maybe I don't believe so, but maybe they do. I think it might not be. We talk about cross-sport 
culture sometimes, right? So it might not be a bad idea for this particular hockey fan base to adopt some of the European soccer culture. And if they lose one match, they're like, this person out. I think it's long, long past that point now. And I think maybe there should be that fusion and the energy of like fan bases worldwide, you know, kind of because we've seen a year where fans have wielded a lot of power and strength and, and, you know, sort of opinion. So I think in this, you know, wouldn't it be really interesting if Belgevin out started to trend because of this show and I will not take any, I will totally toss that to Andrew as his well, not mine. So. All right. We'll, we'll hashtag it after. <laughs> It's only like the twelfth time that I've called for Bergen to be out. Maybe this time it'll work. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much to both Shireen and Mitch for joining me here. Both their Twitter handles are in the description for this uh, podcast, both on the podcast version and on the YouTube version. So please check them out. Follow all of their stuff that they do. Actually, before I, I close the show, uh, Shireen first and then Mitch, just like explain what you've got going on coming forward and uh, point people to where they should go to check out your stuff. Yeah, thanks. So uh, I am actually a co-creator of the Burn It All Down uh, sports podcast, which is, you know, really fun. And on Twitter, I'm always there yelling about something. Um, and what else? Yeah, you can just find my work. I was posted. And I'm happy to talk about I talk a lot about intersections of race and gender within sport, and then try to convince myself to remain a Habs fan. So that's where my life is. It's a difficult job. It's hard. The it's full-time job. <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard. And then I have the pressure of my mother being like a fan for decades, which is hard. Yeah. Hear that. Mitch? Uh, head to epringside.com. That's where all my writing is. Mostly prospect stuff. Although we do have an article from David St. Louis on Jaden Struble, one of the Montreal Canadiens' top prospects. There's a video on our YouTube page. And also I have an article coming out soon with the five prospects with the most approved this season. And one of them is a Montreal Canadiens prospect. You might've heard of him. He scored three goals in his NHL debut. Um, and you can also go to Twitter. Uh, Mitchell Brown and I, uh, I had to relinquish my black belt and never tweet. So I have to tweet now. Uh, and it's mostly just hockey prospects and some stats and, uh, some fun stuff every now and then when it's late at night and I don't know what else to do. So check it out. Awesome. Thanks guys. And thanks to everyone who joined us here on game over, game over Montreal, uh, for a fourth straight loss to start this show. Just fantastic way to market it all. You know, just perfect but you know let's keep it exciting the most exciting thing that's going to happen this season it's going to be less painful than watching these habs play is uh, november 13th julian mckenzie and i are going to do the hot ones gauntlet live on this stream and i'm extremely scared <laughs> i'm extremely scared i think julian's probably going to handle a little hell of a lot better than me i think he's a little bit better with the jamaican roots handling the spicy food i actually really like jerk chicken but i'm very scared of getting past the halfway point here but extremely determined to do it i will definitely watch and probably make fun of you but yeah, yeah. well we've given everyone the green light to like clip that show and absolutely <laughs> tear us down as much as possible because we deserve it. And we're both gluttons for punishment. We're going to do it. It's going to be like, amazing. So like thanks everyone Steve for Dangle. tuning in. Like yeah, the we... Steve Dangle eating a bell pepper video? Is this is what we're trying to replicate here? I hope none of us throw up. I, I think that's like the bar, right? Is like handle it a little bit better than Steve handled that bell pepper. 
<laughs> which is not a high bar, but it's a bar. Uh, Shireen, pepper, have you not okay. seen this one? No, and I'm like, bell pepper? Do you mean Hungarian hot pepper? And you no, accidentally no. said bell pepper? Steve has that's... like an extreme aversion to green peppers. I don't okay. like them either. Like, I, I'm not nearly as bad as Steve, but like, he's like, you smell it and he starts gagging. And he put a challenge out there that like, if they donated a certain, I think it was like $10,000 to Easter Seals, he would okay. eat a bell pepper, a green pepper on stream for everyone to see. And he did it. With like hugging a garbage can the entire time in front of his face it was god awful to watch but he did wow okay so i love that like the, the like courage in the face of like charity to, to do that yeah. kind of stuff does he feel the same way i have to mess i have to ask about red pepper and yellow which are the sweeter of the bell pepper family so i think not you know. as much the okay. green pepper was the worst for him doesn't okay. like any of them but green pepper was the worst okay yeah, I love that we're talking about this because it's relevant. So this is where we get to on Game Over I, Montreal. <laughs> you know what? I, I'm here for it, and thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. And this show is you're working. You're working magic with very little content that they give you, <laughs> the team. So congratulations, Andrew. Three goals to talk about in four games. <laughs> All right, we'll wrap it. Thanks everybody for watching. Thanks so much to Shereen and Mitch. We'll see you on Thursday against the Hurricanes when Just Very Cook Miami scores a hat trick.